Hello gang, Bill Creasy here with another episode of Scripture Uncovered. Lent is the start of a 40-day run-up to the Easter season. The practice of observing Lent dates all the way back to the early 4th century, where the term Tetrakoste, meaning 40 days, is first mentioned in the 5th canon of the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. The term Lent is an English word introduced during the Middle Ages to denote the 40 days leading up to Easter. Lent originally meant spring, as in the German Lenz and the Dutch Lente. It's a period when the hours of daylight begin to lengthen. And we just changed our clocks last weekend, giving us an extra hour of daylight here at the end of the day. 40 days. 40 days of Lent. 40 is a symbolic number of completion in the Bible. The flood lasts 40 days and 40 nights. Moses stays with God on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelite spies spend 40 days exploring the Promised Land. The Israelites themselves spend 40 years in the wilderness after the Exodus. Elijah spends 40 days and 40 nights traveling to Mount Horeb. And both David and Solomon reign for 40 years. We could go on and on. The 40-day period of Lent reflects the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness being tempted prior to beginning his public ministry and the traditional 40 hours he spent in the tomb from 3 p.m. on Good Friday until 7 a.m. on Easter morning. In the Western Church, Lent begins on Ash Wednesday and it ends on Holy Saturday, a total of 46 days. The six Sundays of Lent aren't counted among the 40 days because each Sunday is, well, a kind of mini-Easter, celebrating Jesus' resurrection. And that leaves exactly 40 days of fasting during the Lenten season. In the Bible, God only commands his people to fast one time each year on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. It's in Leviticus chapter 16. It's a complete 24-hour black fast. No food, no water. Fasting later becomes one of the three devotional pillars of Judaism. Prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And Jesus speaks of these practices in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 1-18. Fasting continues as a devotional practice in the early church, especially during periods of preparation for rites, such as baptism and receiving the Eucharist or Holy Communion. The three devotional pillars of Judaism, prayer, almsgiving, and fasting, became dominant themes in the observance of Lent in the early church. Prayer is a discipline that focuses on God. Almsgiving is a discipline that focuses on others, and fasting is a discipline that focuses on oneself. All three serve as means to move into a closer and more intimate relationship with God. The practice of observing Lent became universal in Christendom until the Reformation. Today, the Roman Catholic Church along with most Lutheran, Methodist, Anglican, and Episcopalian churches, 
continue to observe Lent with varying degrees of devotion. But many Protestant churches don't. And I think that's a great loss, a great loss indeed. You know, as we move through the year, each year, each liturgical year, beginning with Advent, looking forward, preparation for, and looking forward to the birth of Christ, then moves into ordinary time, well, when the celebration of Christmas is over, when uh, the three wise men have come on the day of Epiphany, January 6th, then we move into that ordinary time uh, that leads up to the beginning of the Easter season with Lent, Ash Wednesday, and then onward to Easter. From Easter, we move onward to Pentecost, 50 days later, when we celebrate the birth of the church with the coming of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem in AD 32. After that, we're back to ordinary time. So just like in nature, we have a cycle of spring, summer, fall, winter, a cyclical clock, as, as it were. Just like that, we have a liturgical cycle as well each year. And within that liturgical cycle, we have cycles within the various seasons, within the days themselves. So it's a way to remember things. It adds a rhythm to life, uh, a sense of recurrence, and a sense that brings you deeper into your relationship with Christ. One day, in fact, is not just like another day. Each day is unique, each day is special, and each day remembers a time in the life of the church and in our life with God. So I've been thinking a lot about Lent, and typically, you know, people do silly things like, oh, I'm giving up chocolate for Lent. You know, something that's sacrificial. Well, giving up chocolate, I guess, might be a little bit sacrificial, but not all that much. So I've been thinking a lot about it. And maybe the idea of 40 days, 40 days of Lent, much as Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted before initiating his public ministry, Perhaps we could look at these 40 days, these 40 days of Lent leading up to Easter, Jesus' resurrection, new life. Maybe we could look at these days as times of preparation for encountering Christ on a very different level, encountering Christ at the deepest level we can reach. So often, we delude ourselves about who we really are, you know, we look in the mirror, we, we fix our hair, we, uh, women put on makeup, uh, men shave or trim their beards. We have an outward appearance, but what, what's the inner reality? We can so easily delude ourselves into, into a fantasy, somebody that we create that's not real. So maybe during this 40 days of Lent, it might be a time to look into the mirror of reality, to examine our consciences, to understand who we truly are. To illustrate that, I'd like to turn to a story that's one of my favorites, and a story that, uh, well, I, I've taught many times, and many of you may have gone through it with me. And it's the story of King David. You know, David succeeded brilliantly 
he became the great king of Israel. He did everything right. David was God's man. and In a sense, David, God fell in love with David. He could do no wrong. But when he became successful, when he became King David, no longer the outlaw on the run, no longer the dashing rogue, but David, king of Israel, God's man. Well, maybe he created for himself a sense of unreality. It was all going so well. And then we hit 2 Samuel chapter 11. David was a warrior, and David led from the front. If David said, we're taking the hill, he was the first one up the hill. But now we read, after all his successes, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Ramah, and David sat in Jerusalem. Well, if we've been following the David story from the beginning of 1 Samuel all the way up to this point, 2 Samuel 11, this is totally out of character for David. Now, he's sitting on his butt in Jerusalem while his men are out in the field fighting at Rabbah. That's Ammon, Jordan of today. And we continue reading. One evening... David got up from his nap and he walked around on the roof of the palace, just strolled about. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him and he took her and she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. And she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. Holy cow! Oh, what do we do with this story? David, rather than be leading his men in battle at Rabbah, is taking a nap back at the palace. And it was a nice spring evening in the spring, the time when kings go off to war, and David strolled about on the roof of the palace. You know, we were in Jerusalem in January, and we'll be back again on May 19th, and we visit the old city of David. The archaeologists recent there. They've just begun exploring. But we can see the remains of what would have been David's palace. And from that palace, he had quite the overview of the valley. And he saw a woman bathing. Now, she's not on the roof of her house bathing, obviously. You don't haul water up to the roof to take a bath. She's, in fact, undergoing a religious ritual. She's immersing herself in a mikvah. A mikvah, a means of ritual purification. From the mikvah develops baptism later on with John the Baptist. So why was she doing that? Because we read she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. She had just ended her monthly cycle, and according to the Torah, she would undergo ritual purification because during that time when she was bleeding, she was unclean. 
Now, with the ritual purification, she's back to her, her normal part of life. So she's bathing, not bathing, immersing herself in the mikvah. It would have been in the house. And David is watching. I can just see him taking a pair of binoculars and looking through the windows. My goodness, the man's a peeping Tom. David didn't know who she was. In fact, he had to ask someone to go find out. There's no love affair here. David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, Is this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Well, yes, it was. And what does that tell you? Uriah the Hittite is one of David's mighty men. Back at the end of 2 Samuel, we have a list of his mighty men, 30 of them. And Uriah the Hittite is toward the end of that list. He's a senior officer in David's military. Uriah the Hittite has been with David since way back in the outlaw days, when he was on the run at the caves of En Gedi. Uriah the Hittite had fought side by side with David for, what, 10, 20 years? He's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. What should David have said? Hands off. You don't do that with one of your men's wives. Hands off. But no, David sent messengers to get her. Now the messengers go to her house and they knock on the door. She comes to the door and she sees men from the palace. Now, what is the only thing she could be thinking? Something happened to Uriah. He's off at the war in Rabbah. That's about a three-day journey from Jerusalem. Something happened to him. What is it, she said. The king would like to see you. Oh, my gosh. So she went. She came to him. He took her. That is, David raped her. And she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, which tells us what she was doing, not taking a bath, but a ritual purification. It also tells us that the child to be born will be David's and not Uriah's. She said, I'm pregnant. Well, now David has a big problem on his hands. David sent word to Joab. He sends a messenger to General Joab in Rabbah. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Well, imagine the messenger arriving at Joab's tent with a message from the king. Send me Uriah. Well, Joab must have said, why? We're, we're a little busy over here. The king wants to see him now. Hmm. Joab must have thought, must be trouble at home. So Uriah went with the messenger back to Jerusalem, another three-day journey back. Do you think Uriah might have asked the messenger, what's wrong? Is everything okay at home? Is my wife all right? Did the messenger know what happened? The palace has ears, you know. Rumors spread quickly. Did the messenger say something to 
Uriah? Or perhaps the messenger's silence spoke even louder. In any case, on the three-day journey, Uriah had a lot of time to think. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. What? Idle chit-chat. Uriah left his men at the war, and he came all the way back thinking there's something dreadfully wrong, and David just engages in idle chit-chat. And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. That's a euphemism for go home and have a night of rip-roaring sex. Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go home. Why did he not go home? Does Uriah suspect something? Does he know? Did the messenger tell him? Or did the messenger's silence tell him? And David's behavior is very strange. No, Uriah stays with the men at the palace. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Hey, look, haven't you come from a long way? Why don't you go home? Come on, you have a lovely wife at home. Take advantage of it. But Uriah said to David, and if Uriah knows or suspects what's happened, here's what he says. With anger flashing in his eyes, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my lord's men, my men, are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? And the subtext is, as you did, as surely as you live. And Uriah's hand is shaking as he rests it on his sword. As surely as you live, I would not do such a thing. Ooh, David cuts the tension. Stay one more day. Come on. Tomorrow, I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. So the next night, David invites him to dinner. And the two are sitting at the table. David at one end, Uriah at the other. The servants bring out the food. Loads of food on the table. Delicious food. And Uriah glares at David, knocking back one shot after another and getting drunk, not eating. In the evening, he went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Well, what's David going to do now? He knows that Uriah knows. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with, the, with Uriah. 
Uriah carries his own death warrant. Did he look at the letter? In it, David had written, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. That is cold. While Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite was dead. If Uriah knows what David had done, and I would bet anything he read the letter that he was carrying back. Uriah is a hero. David is a scoundrel. When Joab got the letter, he must have thought, what in the world? Because clearly Joab, uh, Uriah, was going to be killed. Put him up against the walls of the fortified city of Rabbah. That's where you die. Joab couldn't tell Uriah's men, so he sends Uriah's men with him, and they too are killed. Joab sent David a full account of battle. He instructed the messenger, when you've finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up against you. He may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? What's wrong with you? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall and cracked his head open? He died. This is combat 101. You don't do that. What's wrong with you people? And if he asks this, then you say to him, Oh, and by the way, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Ah. Then David would know. The messenger set out, and when he arrived and told David everything Joab had sent him to say, the messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died, and moreover Uriah the Hittite is dead. David gets it. He told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Well, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. She loved Uriah. She had been raped by David. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Now, at least David did the right thing. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. That's about the biggest understatement in all of Scripture. And you know, David thought he got away with it. David never thought twice about it. David had deluded himself. He was entitled. He was the king, after all. No, David never saw the wrong that he did. 
until chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. The Lord sent Nathan to David, Nathan the prophet, Nathan, who's been with David from the beginning as well, a very close friend of David. In fact, David will name one of his sons Nathan after this man. David was holding court at the palace. One of the things the king did was decide legal cases. So Nathan came to David and he said, I have a, a problem I wonder if you might help me with. What's that, said David? Well, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, it grew up with him and his children, he shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like one of the children. You know, it's like the family golden retriever. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal. He took instead the lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. He took the family's golden retriever, slaughtered it, and they ate it. David burned with anger. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, and this is one of the bravest acts in all the Bible, you are the man. And this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. And notice Nathan doesn't let David get a word in edgewise. This is what the Lord says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives unto your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why? Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Oh, at this point, David is, is, is shocked. Reality hits him. It's as if Nathan had held up a mirror to David. It's like the portrait of Dorian Gray, Oscar Wilde's novel. A, a young man, handsome, oh, in every way. And he continued being handsome and charming, but inside he was rotting away. Upstairs in the attic was a portrait, a portrait of Dorian Gray. And that portrait reflected Dorian Gray's inner being. It became more and more grotesque. But all the while, Dorian himself remained handsome and charming. That's David. And Nathan doesn't let him get a word in. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, I will do this in broad daylight. Then David, badly shaken, whimpers. I, I, I have sinned before the Lord. 
And Nathan replied, you're darn right you did, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Nathan turned on his heels and left. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David. He became ill. David pleaded with God for for the child. He fasted. He went into his house. He spent nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him to come up, get up. But he wouldn't. He refused. He wouldn't eat. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him. The child was dead. They thought he'd do something desperate. They thought while the child was still living, we spoke to David, he wouldn't listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He'll, he'll, he'll harm himself. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, he is dead. David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions, changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. Now the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? Maybe the Lord would be gracious and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. I think those are words of great comfort for a parent who's lost a child. I will go to him, but he will not come back to me. If you're in that awful position of having lost a child, you'll see that child again one day. When you step out into eternity, into the presence of Christ, that child of yours will be standing right next to him. And you'll get to spend all of eternity having that child back. David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went out to her and I went to her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah, a nickname, little Jedidiah. Hey, Jed. <laughs> Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rava of the Ammonites, captured the royal citadel, and David gets back in the fight. But do you see in the story how David had deluded himself? He got to a place in life where he was privileged. He was entitled. And he didn't even see it. He didn't even see it. Now he does. You wonder, what was it? that David said to the Lord after he was told the child is dead. 
He went into the presence of the Lord. He went flat on his face. And he prayed. Well, later on, he writes a psalm, Psalm 51, for the director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him as he himself had come to Bathsheba. Here's what David said to the Lord. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, in your kindness. In your compassion, blot out my offense. Oh, wash me more and more from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. My offenses, truly I know them. My sin is always before me. I don't think David ever after laid his head on the pillow and closed his eyes without seeing the smiling face of Uriah the Hittite. One of his senior officers, one of those who went back to the outlaw days, Against you, you alone have I sinned. What is evil in your sight, I have done. And so, you may be justified when you give sentence and be without reproach when you judge. Oh, look, in guilt I was born, a sinner was I conceived. I have been rotten from the start. Indeed, you, Lord, love truth in the heart. Then in the secret of my heart, teach me wisdom. Oh, purify me and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear songs of joy and gladness that the bones you have crushed may rejoice. From my sins, turn away your face and blot out all my guilt. A pure heart Create for me, O God. Put a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, nor deprive me of your Holy Spirit. Give me again the joy of your help. With a spirit of fervor, sustain me, that I may teach the wicked your ways, and even men grown old in sin may return to you. If you can forgive me, Lord, and bring me back, then every single person has a chance. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall declare your praise. For in sacrifice you take no delight. Burnt offering from me you would refuse. My, my sacrifice, a contrite spirit, a humbled, contrite heart you will not spurn. In your goodness, show favor to Zion. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you'll be pleased with lawful sacrifice, burnt offerings, wholly consumed. Then you will be offered young bulls on your altar. This is a heartbreaking story, and one that, well, David lived life on a large stage. David lived life large. But I'd wager that many of us have been down this same path. Maybe not quite like that of David. We weren't kings after all. We weren't commanding men in battle, most of us. But we've all been down this path in one form or another. And maybe this time of Lent, this time of preparation, 40 days of preparation, like Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted, 
perhaps these 40 days are time to hold up the mirror of reality. Not to look at ourselves in the bathroom mirror, but to go up in the attic and look at the portrait. The portrait of Dorian Gray or the portrait of me or you. To recognize exactly who we are. Because on Good Friday of Holy Week, the Lord took all of our sin upon himself and he bore that sin on the cross. He suffered. He died. He was placed in a tomb. And on Sunday morning, Easter, 40 hours later, he rose. You and I, we're not saved by the love of God. The love of God never saved anyone. The love of God is the motive for our salvation. But the operative action is the shed blood of Christ on the cross. And I don't think we can fully grasp our relationship with the Lord and with the Father without a recognition of who we truly are, of what it, of what it was that he paid the price for on that cross. So rather than give up chocolate or dessert, let's look at the mirror of reality. Just the thought for this Lenten season. See you next week. Thank you guys. Bye-bye.